From Jihad to Jesus. Today on Evidence and Answers, you're going to hear from a former terrorist who came to Jesus Christ. This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. Let's get right to this special program and Pat's guest. Thanks a lot, Kevin. We have with us a special guest today, Jerry Rasamni. Jerry was a born in a Muslim family and grew up in Lebanon during its bloody civil war, and he was a militia fighter for the Muslim Lebanese army there. And he's going to share with us his exciting story of how he went from jihad to Jesus. And that's the title of his great book here, From Jihad to Jesus. Jerry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pat. I'm thrilled to be on the show with you. Thank you for having me. Jerry, we want to thank you for writing the book and sharing your story. And I'm sure many of us are going to want to hear uh, your exciting story. So share with us a little bit of your background. Where were you born? And describe a little bit of your faith as a Muslim. Okay, well, uh, my story is one of uh, one having come from hatred into love. You know, just to give you some insights about the hatred that brewed in me when I was in Lebanon during the Civil War, one day I was at the front and I heard the church bells toll signaling Sunday worship, and without hesitation I knew exactly what I had to do, and I picked up a sniper rifle with a long scope, and I aimed it at him at the man tolling the bell. He was on the Christian side a few hundred feet away from me. And I thought Allah was smiling at me. And when I had his head in my crosshairs, I pulled the trigger and I had, I had a grin from ear to ear. And then I screeched in horror as I saw that the bullet had missed his head by a few inches as he ducked down at the last second with the toll of the bell. And I was distraught because I thought I had missed the opportunity of a lifetime. For I could have told the Christians on the other side that I was the one who blessed their service on that Sunday morning and that such would be the fate of anyone who dared to the church bell. But I thought that all was lost because of my reckless arrogance. I lamented only if I had aimed at his heart instead, maybe I would have got him. Pat, I was a product of my surroundings, having grown up in the civil war in Lebanon. There was hatred, there was bloodshed and killing everywhere, and it's no surprise that I grew up hating. And we had, uh, we had an enmity with the Christians, um, over there. And, and having been in the Civil War, I came to see, Pat, something that many never perceive in a lifetime. I came to see the true heart of man, and it is the heart of darkness. And when religion tells you that man is basically good, it is a lie of colossal dimensions. For I saw what I am capable of and what others around me are capable of. And I saw men burn. I smelt her burning, and I was satisfied. That is what is in the heart of man. That is what man is capable of. Now, how are you as a Muslim able to get over that hurdle and really take a critical look at your own faith? That's very difficult to do. Well, let me just say that the majority of Muslims are Muslims by culture and by name, in the same way that we have people claiming to be Christians that are only that by name. And so I was a secular Muslim in my belief. But one thing, Pat, that was unthinkable to me uh, was for me to be a Christian. And when I, when I came to this country and I began to, to examine the Bible in order to disprove it, see, I fell in love with a Christian lady, and she was the only uh, Christian probably in the history of the church, of the, of the Baptist church, who's never heard of being unequally yoked. And so I asked her if she would marry me, and, and you know, she, she agreed. But she made me promise I would go to church with her. And I... I thought it was a win-win situation because I knew that the Bible was false. I just didn't know why. So I thought this would give me an opportunity to disprove the Bible. But Pat, as I began to examine the Bible, 
in order to disprove it. I came across some re revolutionary teachings. You see, in the 99 excellent names of God, of Allah, and Islam, not one of them is love. Not one of them is father. But even though uh, Muslims fear God, but they don't have that intimacy, that intimate relationship with them. In Christianity, I learned that God, even though I have sinned against him, even though I have rebelled against him, he made a way for me to come before his very throne and call him Abba through the sacrifice of, that his son has done on the cross for me, that I, who sinned against him, can come before the creator of the universe and call him Baba, Abba. And this revelation just rocked my world. Yeah, in Islam, the relationship is more of a master-slave kind of described uh, in the Quran, isn't it? There is no intimacy, exactly. God is unknowable in Islam. So when Muslims are praying, they're not asking God to intercede or answer their prayer. Exactly what are they doing when they pray five times a day? What are they hoping to accomplish? Well, they're hoping to amass good works in order that their good works will overcome their bad deeds on the Day of Judgment. See, they believe in the concept of the scales of justice that are brought up in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And they believe that their good deeds will be weighed against their bad deeds on the Day of Judgment. And if the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then they will go to heaven, otherwise hell. But ultimately, God has the final say as to arbitrarily deciding who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell. So the formula of, of heaven and hell in Islam is really unclear, and it is really heartbreaking that millions of Muslims follow the pillars of religion without having the assurance of eternal life. You know, it reminds me of the story of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was a member of the pantheon, Greek pantheon of deities, and Sisyphus offended the gods. Uh, of course, it's a fictional story. He offended the gods because he revealed uh, immortal secrets to mere mortals, and he was confined to a life of futility, to rolling a massive stone up a hill, only to watch it roll back and to repeat the process endlessly. And similarly, when Muslims follow the pillars of religion without the assurance of eternal life, it is a life of futility. Well, let's get to pillar number one. Uh, Islam teaches that people are born in a pure state. Uh, the Bible teaches that people are born sinners. That was very significant to you, wasn't it? Explain that to us. Yes. In fact, if we uh, look at man, if we examine man, uh, we see easily his feet of clay. I mean, this issue of whether people are born in a pure state or in sin is a defining difference between Christianity and Islam. This is really the smoking gun, the evidence by which Islam uh, or Christianity rise or fall. Christians believe that people are born in, in a sinful state, uh, what we call original sin, and they require a savior, whereas Muslims believe that people are born in a pure state, in fitra, and that they can attain moral purity according to their own merit. But, you know, surprisingly here, the Quran retells the story of the Bible concerning the events in the Garden of Eden. And the Quran tells us that Satan tempted Adam and Eve, that's in Surah 236, and caused their shame to be exposed, that's Surah 727, and that they were subsequently expelled from the garden because of their sins, that's Surah 238. So by deduction, the Quran admits that by disobeying God, Adam and Eve not only affected their own destinies by being expelled from the garden, but they also affected the destinies of their progeny, the, the human race. 
But despite these overwhelming evidences, Muslims do not entertain the doctrine of original sin. As far as I'm concerned, I saw what man is capable of. I saw the darkness in man's heart. And for me, I knew that I, since my sin is an infinite sin against God himself, I required an infinite Savior to pay the price for my sin. Uh, Jerry, do a lot of Muslims feel that, or know that they've fallen short of God's law and there's a sense of futility of not being able just to do enough to really appease Allah and fulfill the law? Muslims follow the pillars of religion blindly. But let, let me put this whole argument in perspective, Pat. You know, Islamic tradition is very specific about ritual cleansing in preparation for prayer, for salat. So if Muslims have undergone ablution, which is ceremonial cleansing, but they come in contact with some dirt and proceed to pray, they're considered unclean, and Allah will not accept their prayers. In the same way, however, that dirt makes our bodies unclean, sin makes our souls unclean, and this qualifies from approaching a holy God. So really, once you examine the evidence, you see that, you know, our sin separates us from a holy God. Yes, and, you know, in Islam, they reject the idea of Christ dying on the cross and the resurrection uh, because they reject the idea that uh, man is born sinful and in need of a Savior. Man can indeed save himself because he is born pure. Isn't that correct? Correct. In essence, uh, you know, if you recall the story at the Tower of Babel, people all spoke the same language at the time. And they wanted to build a tower to commemorate their own greatness so that they will make themselves a name in the earth. And so instead of looking at God and instead of glorifying and magnifying God, you know, they looked at themselves. And that is the same lie that Satan came and told Eve in the Garden of Eden. He said, you will be like God. Satan didn't want to give God the glory, but he wanted the glory for himself or for man. And so in the same way that, you know, these people at the Tower of Babel sinned against God by putting their trust and their eyes on themselves instead of God, today Muslims sin against God by putting their faith in themselves instead of God. In essence, they become gods in their own eyes, and God becomes irrelevant in the folds of his creation, and they trust in themselves, and they believe in essence the lie that Satan told Eve in the garden, you will be like God. So pillar number one was the nature of man. Now pillar number two is the Quran. Is the Quran the true word of God? Well, what does the Quran claim for itself? Well, the Quran claims that it has been written on tablets of stone and in heaven. It exists in heaven and that it is eternal. But, you know, to a Muslim, the greatest sin is the sin of shirk is to associate anyone with God. In other words, that's what they accuse Christians of when they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They say that's associating someone with God. They don't understand that God chooses to reveal himself in different ways. But however, you know, if they truly believe that Islam has always existed on tablets of stone in heaven, then they themselves commit the sin of shirk. In other words, God is not the only one who is eternal, but the Quran itself has been eternal or is eternal. They believe that, uh, that the Quran is the word, is the true word of God, and that uh, it cannot be changed. Yes, that that it is the perfect book that came out of heaven and that also it has been perfectly preserved to this day. Right, yes. 
they don't believe in translating the Quran. But in fact, when you when you take that argument, you know, to its natural uh, conclusion, Muslims all over the world, 80% of Muslims who do not understand Arabic, you know, are required to pray in a language that they do not understand. So in essence, they're repeating these words they do not understand. So instead of having the intimacy of a relationship with God, you have repetitive rituals that are meaningless. So repetitive rituals, in essence, take the place of the intimacy of a relationship. But if you examine the Quran, you see that the, the hand of man had gone into, into changing the Quran over the years. In other words, you see that the Caliph Osman, he, he preceded the uh, Islam's prophet, you know, in the Caliphate. And he was called the terror of the books because, they, because the people said that he found the Qurans many and he burned them except one. So different caliphs had their hands in, in making the Quran what it is today. And it is intellectually dishonest to, to claim that the Quran remains unchanged since the days of Islam's prophet. Jerry, what are the satanic verses, so-called, and what do we need to know about them? That's a very good question. The satanic verses came from when Islam's prophet was in Mecca. He's from the city of Mecca. And the, the people, the pagans in Mecca, wanted to, you know, they came to him, and they said, if you allow us to worship, to continue to worship the daughters of Allah, then we will, we will join your religion. And so he came up with a surprising revelation from supposedly from Allah that sanctioned the worship of these three pagan deities, the daughters of Allah. And so uh, what happened is when his followers found out, some of them fell away because he had abandoned, you know, his true call, his call to monotheism. But then when he immigrated from the city of Mecca to the city of Medina, and he became very powerful there, he rescinded, wiped out, or deleted the uh, revelations of the satanic verses, and he claimed that those revelations were given to him by Satan instead of God. But if those revelations were given to him by Satan, how do we know that the entire thing isn't? So that's a blemish. That's been a blemish, you know, on Islam, you know, that, that has been... Very relevant in the West, but surprisingly in the East, they don't discuss that, or they don't discuss anything that puts a blemish on Islam. They're yeah. not interested in critical analysis. Yes, it's one of the things that you mentioned in your book that textual text critical studies of the Quran are in their infancy because people aren't really allowed to comment or critically study the Quran, as you mentioned. Exactly. I mean, if you are to say anything bad about the Quran in the East. You know, in Muslim lands, I mean, uh, either the, the mosque or, or the state will just stamp you down. So they're not interested, you know, as I said, in, in truly understanding, you know, critical, doing critical analysis of this book, of their holy book. So you stated that the Quran has signs of human origin, that it has not been preserved perfectly as Muslims claim. But also in your book, you point out imperfections or some errors we find in the Quran. Could you uh, mention some for us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, when you, when you examine the Quran, you see there's a lot of uh, fallacies, abrogations, pagan influences, discrepancies, sexual errors, historical errors, plagiarism, scientific errors, grammatical errors. And I list all of these and more in the book. 
for instance, concerning plagiarism, you know, the Quran borrows 70% of its themes and stories from the Bible. And this prompted many scholars to assert that the Quran is nothing more than a counterfeit of the Bible. And you also go on to mention several sci uh, glaring scientific errors, grammatical errors, historical errors, uh, and textual errors as well in the Quran. Exactly. I mean, for instance, if we look at, let's say, historical errors, uh, you know, Alphonse Menjana wrote concerning the historical errors in the Quran in depth. And um, he said, you know, he commented that in the Quran, Miriam, the sister of Aaron, is confounded with the Virgin Mary. That's in Surah Al-Imran, Surah 335-337. And that Haman is given as minister of Pharaoh instead of Ahasuerus. Uh, and so he says that ignorance uh, of the author of the Quran about everything outside of Arabia and some part of Syria is evident when he makes the fertility and the lushness of Egypt, whose reign is never missed, for the simple reason that it is very seldom seen, depend on rain. In other words, you know, Egypt is made to depend on rain when, when rain is, is, you know, never seen or very seldom seen. And so there's a lot of similar, similar errors like that, that that went into the Quran. Now, how does that compare with the Bible as you studied the Bible? How did the Quran compare with the Bible? Well, the Bible has withstood the test of time and the test of ages. And it has been, you know, there's not one error that, that we, we found in the Bible. In other words, when you compare the Bible and the Quran, you know, you see that the Quran flunks its own self-imposed veracity test. You know, we see that the Quran contradicts the Bible concerning fundamental issues. So they both cannot be right. One of them has to be in error. And the Quran claims that the Bible is the, is the barometer of truth. You know, for instance, if we look at uh, Surah 1094a, it says, if thou art in doubt of what we have revealed to you, ask those who read the book, the Bible, before you. And then, uh, you know, Surah 35, 31, and that uh, which we have revealed to you of the book, the Bible, that is the truth, verifying that which came before it. Most surely with respect to his servants, Allah is aware of seeing. So there's a lot of verses, like, for instance, Surah 691b, uh, Surah 29:46, where the Quran is telling us that, hey, if you're, if you're in doubt of these, these scriptures, then check with the people of the book. Check with the Bible. And, and so, therefore, the Quran itself must be in error. Uh, since the Quran and the Bible disagree on fundamental issues, again, the logic demands that one of them has to be in error. And actually, those verses encourage Muslims to read the Bible, so Muslims should be encouraged to actually read the Old and New Testament. Isn't that right? That is absolutely right. The, the Quran really encourages it. You see... Originally, during the first 13 years of Muhammad's ministry, when he was in Mecca, he didn't have a lot of adherence. And so his message was heavily influenced by Christianity. It was a message, you know, of, of uh, love and uh, tolerance. But then when he left Mecca and went to Medina and he became powerful militarily, well, he stamped out his enemies. And and, you know, he, uh, the city of Medina was owned by Jews, basically, but he slaughtered them and he banished them from the land. And that became a jihadist Islam. And then, uh, you know, the verses of the earlier verses of tolerance toward Christians and Jews were abrogated. They were canceled out by later verses that encouraged jihad against them. Wow. Man, we could spend just a, a whole show on 
uh, on uh, the Quran and the Bible. But we got to move on. Let's go to pillar number three, Islam's prophet Muhammad. You make a good contrast between Jesus and Muhammad. So tell us a little bit about Muhammad. Right. See, Muhammad grew up in an environment where there was a lot of paganism, obviously, and he wanted to rally people under the, the banner of the monotheistic deity. But surprisingly, there are no prophets that testify of Muhammad's ministry. Jesus said, however, of his ministry, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me. That's in John 5:31 through 32. You know, some Muslims point to Deuteronomy 18.18 as speaking of the Prophet Muhammad. It says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This verse, however, finds its fulfillment in John 4.25, when Jesus witnessed to the Samaritan woman who, who referred to this prophecy, and the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He's called the Christ. And when he comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. And God sent his son to die and to pay the price for our sin. But you know, after the crucifixion, there was the resurrection. And because he rose, I too can rise from the dead. I too can spend eternity with God because he paid the price for my sin, a price which I could not afford. All they have to do, Pat, all you have to do, I'm not speaking with you, is put your trust in the Savior. Accept the free gift of eternal life that you could never earn, that God gives you as a gift. Accept it. Accept the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on your behalf and invite him into your heart as your Savior. And if you do that, and we can pray a very simple prayer, Pat. Dear Lord, I confess my sin. I confess, and I'm going to ask you to just repeat the simple prayer after me. Dear Lord, I confess that I have sinned against you. And I ask you to come into my life and to forgive my sin. I accept your free gift of eternal life. Lord Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. Wash my sin away. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your salvation, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This has been Evidence and Answers, and we've been speaking with Jerry Rasomni, the author of the book From Jihad to Jesus, an ex-militant's journey to faith in Christ. Fantastic book. You're going to have to... It's one of the books that you should have on your shelf and read. It's an exciting and wonderful book of a man's journey from militant Islam to faith in Jesus Christ. And Jerry, we want to thank you for being on our show and for the great ministry you're having for Jesus Christ. Thank you, Pat. I, I appreciate you having me on. I'd like to point people to my website, www.fromjihadtojesus.com. Jihad is spelled J-I-H-A-D, so it's www.fromjihadtojesus.com. And there's a blog. If you have any questions, uh, you can go ahead and post them to me, uh, and I will be uh, I will 
do my best to answer them. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. You'll find Pat Zuckerman's interviews with leading scholars and speakers on the most crucial issues facing the church and the world. Go to evidenceandanswers.org and be equipped. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. God bless and thanks so much for listening. Evidenceandanswers.org.